Good morning, glory of Christ. If you will, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. I want to read with you verses 7 through 13, which is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Here is the word of God to this church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let's pray now that the Lord will help us to do just that. Our God and Father, we thank you again for speaking to your church, specifically to a specific church and then through them to all the churches. We thank you for communicating with us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for revealing to your people specific things about your character and who you are on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for making clear your will about this particular church and through them what you would love to be able to say about every church in the world and across time. We thank you, Jesus, for making promises to them and to all of us. We thank you for lifting up our eyes to see the great things that you have planned to do for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I simply pray that you would do this powerful work, Lord, that you would lift up our eyes and help us to see the long-term future so that we will envision the short-term circumstances that we're living through right now to be put in proper perspective, O Lord. Even as you did for that ancient church, so please now do for this church. Give us eyes to see. Give us godly perspective. Fill us with hope. Fill us with faith. Fill us with fresh passion and desire and power to do your will and to preach your name in this world. And for how you will work in us, how you will work through us, we glorify your great and gracious name now. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name we pray. Amen. About a year ago, I was speaking with an older pastor who's been an on and off uh, sort of mentor of mine for the last several years. He's preached through just about every book of the Bible, including the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. And so I was asking him for any advice that he might have um, for me as I began to think about preaching through Revelation. I think at that time we were working our way through the Gospel of John. In fact, I'm pretty certain of that, but I was thinking quite a bit about Revelation. So I just asked him his point of view. And the main thing that he said to me was this. He said that the key to interpreting the book of Revelation is John 16, 33. Now, he, he may be right about that. He may be wrong about that. That, that may be an overstatement. It, it may not be an overstatement. 
I don't know, but as I thought about what he said and as I have thought about what he said over this last year and and especially in these last few months as we've actually gotten into the book of Revelation, I've come more and more to think that he's right. And here's what Jesus said in John 16, 33. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles of many kinds, but take heart. Literally means have courage because I have overcome the world. Some seasons of our lives are just gloriously free from trial, and other seasons of our lives are so filled with fierce trial that we wonder if we're even going to make it through. So we feel the impact of one trial after another on our minds and our hearts and our, just our, even our physical bodies, our spirits. Sometimes we just wonder, oh Lord, am I, am I even going to make it through this season at all? Will my faith endure this test of my faith? But rather than letting our souls be overwhelmed by all the seasons and all the troubles of life, what we ought to do is allow the Lord to fill our hearts with courage, not because we're going to find strength in in ourselves to overcome this world and to press through our troubles, but, but because Jesus has made us a promise, namely that he has overcome the world, meaning that he has overcome the world for us. So yes, in this world, trouble, but in Christ, help In this world, difficulty. In Christ, all that we need to overcome those difficulties. In this world, all kinds of trials and tribulations. But in Christ, not only the ability to get through, but to grow through those seasons of life. This is the promise of Christ to us, beloved. And I think in John 16, 33, and in Revelation as a whole, and surely in this letter to the Church of Philadelphia in specific, he's trying to get us to lift up our eyes and look to our Savior rather than to our circumstances so that our hearts will be filled with a living hope, so that our hearts will be filled with courage to press on, so that our hearts will be filled with joy, even though it's mixed with many pains in this life. The Lord wants to encourage us today, beloved. And I don't know where you're at today in your life. I don't know what you're going through, but I just want to ask you to allow the Lord to do his work in you today. Have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church as, plural, to this church too. Have a heart to receive what Jesus wants to minister to you and to us as a people and to his church around the world and across time. Let's have ears to hear what the Lord is speaking to us today. Somewhere, somebody said something like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And the logic is, who's going to reverse God's decision about our lives? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, O Lord, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life in this world is hard. No, In all these things, we are not simply conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain to the depth of my soul that neither death nor life, the ultimate trial on this earth, right? Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this world, we will have many troubles, but in Christ, we have all that we need, not only to get through, but to grow through those troubles. So again, I say, may we have ears to hear today what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and may we have hearts to receive the encouragement that the Spirit is giving to the churches. Today, I received a card from somebody that's related to someone in our church, but is outside the church. And they basically said, well, I can't come over and give you a hug right now, but here's a little hug through mail and just gave Kim and I something very kind and just lifted up our spirits. And as I read what this person said and received the gift that this person gave to us, I thought to myself, Charlie, have a heart to truly receive this. Let this person encourage you. They're not just trying to do something nice. They're actually trying to encourage your spirit. Let them do it. This is what I'm saying about this word of God to us today. Beloved, we need to open up our hearts, humble ourselves before Jesus and say, Lord, please come and encourage us and give us hearts to allow you to do that. Give us hearts to cooperate with you with what you want to do inside of us today. So again, may we have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus begins this letter as he does all the others with these words. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The city of Philadelphia was located about 36 miles southeast of Sardis. It was situated along the northern edge of the Tamulis mountain range in the Hermes River Valley. And you can see from the graphic that I've put up on the screen for you there that both Sardis and uh, Philadelphia were connected geographically. What you can't see so much is that they were also uh, connected politically. Unlike Sardis, Philadelphia was not a major city. It was not a powerful city. In fact, it was under the administrative control of Sardis. It had to look to Sardis for a number of things. It had to uh, give tribute to the Roman Empire through, Thar- through Sardis and in a number of other ways uh, submit themselves to that at least politically greater city. But we shouldn't have in our mind that Philadelphia was just a sort of an out-of-the-way place or an inglorious city because it was neither of those things. In fact, it it was founded in the second century BC by a Lydian king named Attalus II. He had a heart for the Hellenistic worldview. He had a heart for Greek culture, in other words. Like Alexander the Great before him, he felt that it was his duty in life to spread the Greek culture around the world. And so he actually founded the city of Philadelphia in what he considered to be a strategic location from which they could spread the the glories of Greek culture, at least in his mind, especially to the peoples in the south. So this was a sort of missionary city, although the mission that they were on was to spread word about their own culture. He had a, a real passion about being Greek, and he wanted the whole world to know it. So because of that, he deliberately situated the city along a a very important trade route called the Royal Persian Road. That road connected the city of Pergamum to the cities that were in the south and, and even to the far east. And so again, in his mind, it was just a strategic location to fulfill what he considered to be his life's calling. He was, besides being passionate about Greek culture, was also very loyal to his, other, his um, older brother, who had also been the king before him. And because of his loyalty to his brother, he was nicknamed um, Philadelphus, which is the singular of Philadelphia. 
So Philadelphus just means the um, lover of a brother. Philadelphia is the plural, which means lover of, of brothers or lover of people. So like our city, Philadelphia, came to be known as the city of brotherly love. It took on his nickname. It was named after him. Because of Attalus's vision for the city, it was uh, a host to a number of ornate temples there that were built to the Greek gods, and it was uh, a host to various stadiums and other cultural sites. So politically, they were not powerful, but culturally, they were very rich. Again, just, just think of the place as a missionary base from which to spread Greek culture, and you'll sort of get a vision of what the city was about. It was not out of the way. It was not inglorious. In fact, it was in a beautiful place, and it had many beautiful buildings and cultural centers. And because... It was situated right in a very rich part of the Hermas Valley. It became uh, very wealthy because they cultivated grapes and made wine. And in fact, they became world famous for the wine that they were making, sort of like uh, France and parts of California are today. So was Philadelphia back in that day. They also uh, were wool makers, but their primary means of income was wine. And again, the city became very wealthy. So when you think Philadelphia, uh, think politically... Um, normal, maybe we could just put it that way, but think culturally and agriculturally rich. So that's what the city was about. It was a destination. You would have wanted to go there. You would have wanted to visit there, but it was not in a just sort of a a, a political geographical sense, a very powerful city. Like most of the churches in Revelation 1 to 3, the Church of Philadelphia was probably originated under the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he and his companions preached the gospel throughout that area. But however the church came about, what we know for sure is that by the time that the Apostle John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, there was a thriving body of believers in that place. They were outwardly weak. They were not rich. They were not politically or or socially strong. But before the Lord, they were absolutely pleasing. And before the Lord, they were absolutely commendable. The Lord has nothing negative at all to say to this church. This church was persecuted. This church was faithful, and this church was fruitful in ways that matter to God. It was a beautiful church, and I would have loved to visit them. I would have loved to have been part of a a service of theirs or ministries of theirs, and I can't wait until the day when all of us can meet our brothers and sisters who were worshiping there. With this sort of vision of the church in mind, here's how Jesus addressed himself uh, to them in verse 1. He said of himself that he is the Holy One, that he is the true one, and that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. As I've said to you many times before, when we think about holiness, we often think about moral purity and issues like that. And of course, moral purity is a part of holiness, but that's a part of holiness in the same way that that an apple is a part of a a fruit tree. In other words, the, the apple is the fruit of the tree, it's not the root of the tree. And in the same way, moral behavior is a fruit of holiness, but it's not at the root of holiness. What's at the root of holiness is utter devotion to God himself. And probably the most important thing, or or certainly one of the most important things we could ever say about Jesus, is that he was wholly devoted to God the Father, and of course, to God the Holy Spirit. It is a great and eternal mystery. But somehow or other, God is one singular God. He is one Uh, divine being in three distinct persons. God is a singular divine community. And God all throughout the Bible is described as holy, the main part of which means that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are intensely committed to one another, beloved. 
the love and loyalty between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is infinite and intense. It is eternal and affectionate. It is inviolable and incorruptible. This is surely the most important thing we could possibly know about God, the joy of God in God, the joy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, is utterly devoted to God. And because this is true, Jesus also says of himself that he is the true one. It's hard not to think then of what Jesus said in John fourteen six when he referred to himself as the truth. So Jesus isn't just someone who, who proclaimed or promoted the truth. He's someone that looked uh, to the people and said, look at me and you will know that I am the truth. I don't just bring you truth. I am the truth. This was his self-perception. This was his proclamation about himself. But but fundamentally, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus is the truth? Well, there's lots of different ways that we could approach that question, but I, I think the primary answer to the question it mean, is that to say that Jesus is the truth is to say that he has absolute integrity in his being. What I mean is that the thoughts of Jesus and the affections of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, the works of Jesus, are absolutely unified with one another. There's not even a crack of disunity between these things. Jesus is absolutely unified in his being. He is absolutely true. He is absolutely trustworthy. He is absolutely faithful. You can believe whatever he says. You can bank your life on whatever he does because there's absolute integrity inside of him. There's absolute devotion to the Father inside of him. This is who Jesus Christ is, beloved. He is true. He is holy, he is true, and as the one who is holy and true, he says a third thing about himself, that he has the key of David. Now what does that mean? Well, centuries before Christ, God the Father made an amazing promise to David, and I think what Jesus is saying here is that he is the fulfillment of that promise. And because he is the fulfillment of that promise, all the power of the kingdom of God has been handed over to him. So we could read a number of texts about this, but let me just draw your attention to three Old Testament texts. The promises to David, the Davidic covenant, it's sometimes called, really begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me just read for you verses 12 to 14. But on your own time, you might want to go back and read that whole chapter because it's, it's very rich. The Lord said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In a way, the Lord was talking about Solomon, but in a much greater way, he was talking about Jesus. And we know this from the logic of the Bible, but also from Hebrews chapter 1 itself, who quotes these verses and says, that's about Jesus. This is about Jesus. This is a, a promise from God the Father to David that was fulfilled in Jesus. And then, again, the Lord says in Psalm 132 through the psalmist, a, a psalm of ascent, he says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your bodies, of your body, I will set on your throne. And the idea is I'll set him there forever and ever. And finally, again, although we could go to many places, here's what the prophet Jeremiah had to say. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, 
so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on my on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, which have become the people of God, we learn in the book of Revelation and, and elsewhere. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. That's us, his people. These are the promises of God to David, beloved. And these promises were filled in the, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, God handed him the key of David. He handed him the key to the kingdom of God. He gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He gave him all the authority that exists anywhere. And please notice that it doesn't say keys plural. It says key singular. There's not a whole ring of keys to the kingdom of God. There's a singular key given to a singular person because he is the singular king over all persons and things. The Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the Holy One. He is absolutely and utterly devoted to God the Father from his heart. He is the true one. There is absolute integrity in his being. We as sinful people have to join the psalmist and say, Oh Lord, unite our hearts to fear your name. Our hearts are not united. Our, our minds, our thoughts, our words, our actions are not united, Father. We're so scattered. We're so temptable. We're so distractible. Father, please unite us to fear your name. But Jesus has never had to pray a prayer like this, beloved. He's the true one. Absolutely, he has absolute integrity of his being, and therefore he's absolutely trustworthy. He's absolutely faithful. And as the Holy One and True One, he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has in his possession the singular key of David. He has in his possession the singular key to the kingdom of God. Beloved, this is who Jesus is. And the other thing we need to grapple with today, to receive into our hearts today, is that this is who he is for the church. This is who he is for the church in Philadelphia. This is who he is for the church is plural. This is who he is for this church right here in Elk River. So may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Having revealed something about his character for the church, Jesus now turns his attention to them and begins with those seven time repeated words, I know. And in this case, what he says that he knows about the church, or at least what he highlights about his knowledge of them, is their works. I know your works. I know your way of life. I know your habits. I know your priorities. I know you're coming out and I know you're going in. I know you're rising up and you're laying down. I know everything there is to know about you. I know your passions. I know your motives. I know your hopes. I know your dreams. I know your fears. I know you. I know you. I know you. This is Jesus' word to the church. And as the one who knew them so well, he made a promise to them that was very important to them at this time. He says in verse 11, Behold, or it can't be verse 11, it's got to be verse um, 8. I'm sorry, my notes are wrong. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. We just heard that he's got the singular key to the kingdom, so he can open things and nobody can shut them. He can shut things and nobody can open them. And now he's looking at the church and saying, Look, I, I've set an open door before you. And actually, the Greek text puts it a little stronger than that. To be sort of woodenly literal about it, the Greek text reads, Behold, I have set before you a door that has been opened. You see, this door doesn't just happen to be opened. Something has happened to this door, and Jesus has done it. 
Namely, he has opened this door, he's opened it wide, and nobody can reverse his decision. Nobody can reverse his action. Nobody can uh, oppose his will. He's done something for the church that is permanent, that is irreversible, that is hope-producing, that is joy-producing. Jesus did this deliberately, and he did this deliberately for them so that they could walk through it, so that they could gain access to whatever was on the other side, so that they could go in whatever way God wanted them to go, so that they could do the will of their Father in the world. Several verses in the New Testament use this language of an open door to talk about God opening up opportunities to spread the gospel. And so uh, a number of commentators and pastors have suggested that that's the open door that's being talked about here. That Jesus is saying to this church that that we'll see in a minute was a, a weak church, still had a great gospel opportunity laid before them, and nobody was going to be able to take that opportunity from them. And that's definitely a possibility. That may have been the door that was open before them. Other commentators and pastors like Tom Schreiner comes to mind. He believes that the door open here is not the door to opportunity, but the door to the kingdom of God itself. He, he points to chapter 4, verse 1, where John saw an open door. And he points to other verses later in Revelation and say what, what Jesus is saying is that no matter what the world is doing to you, I have opened the door to the kingdom of heaven to you, and nobody will be able to change my mind. Nobody will be able to keep you out. And that's certainly a possibility, too. But I think that rather than speculating about the things that we don't know, rather than trying to figure out what Jesus has not made clear, we should focus our attention instead on what he has made clear. We should focus our attention instead on what we know for sure. And what we know for sure is that Jesus has opened this door, whatever that door was, and since Jesus opened it, no one would be able to shut it. Since Jesus was at work for for the church, on behalf of the church, nobody would be able to oppose him or ultimately even to be able to oppose the church. Since Jesus was for the church, nobody would be able to stand against them, not just against him. Since Jesus had made made a way for the church, no one would be able to stand in their way, not ultimately. Could they persecute the church? Of course they could. We'll see in a minute they were, but they could not ultimately stand in the way. You see, he was the holy one for them. He was the true one for them. He was the one with the key of David for them. This is who he was for his people. And since he was for his people, who could possibly stand against them? Yes, in this world, this church had trouble. But in this world, the church had a savior that was much greater than their trouble. Can I get an amen to that? We have a savior that's greater than any singular trouble or all the troubles that we're facing right now, beloved. Have eyes to see. This is who Jesus is, and it's who Jesus is for us. Oh, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Having something revealed, something of his character and his authority and his disposition toward the church and this open door that he set before the church, he now goes on to share something else that he knows about the church. So if you'll look with me at verse 8, he says to them, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Whatever the status of this city of Philadelphia within the Roman Empire, and whatever the status of the church within that city, the perspective of Jesus on this church was absolutely clear. From a worldly point of view, this church was probably small. It probably was not a very large church, at least comparatively speaking. It probably had comparatively few resources. It probably almost certainly had little social and political power. It was probably being overwhelmed by earthly forces that were greater than them, or at least appeared to be greater than them. They had little power. They had little strength, or to turn that around, they were weak. 
In many ways, from an earthly point of view, they were weak. As the world counts such things, this church was unremarkable and unimportant. But Jesus, praise be to God, does not see with the eyes of this world. Rather, he sees as one who has perfect sight and perfect insight. He knows exactly what he's seeing, and he knows exactly why things and people are the way that they are. And as one who has perfect sight and perfect insight, Jesus did not criticize this church for their weakness. Rather, he commended them. Now, there's reasons why the church would have been criticized back in that day. And I want to suggest to you that even in our day, small, weak churches like this are often criticized even by other believers, even by other groups of churches. I have been uh, in meetings where leaders are are collaborating together to figure out how to get help to these smaller, weaker churches in their mind and in their way of thinking. So basically that they can make these churches into their own image and, and make these churches value the things that they value. And I'm not saying that... Their motives are all wrong. I'm not saying that even all their convictions are wrong, but I am saying in many ways, their eyes are on the wrong prize. Their eyes are on the wrong metrics. As I was driving into the office this evening to record the sermon, I was remembering a time when I was in India, and a brother over there just looked at me right in the eye and said, Brother Charlie, so many Americans are just idolatrous about numbers. They just want numbers, numbers, numbers. And if they come to India and we can produce the numbers, they'll come back, they'll help us, they'll send us money. They'll never truly know who we are, but they're sure impressed with numbers. And because of our idolatry surrounding numbers, we're we're gullible, to be frank about it. In many places of the world, we're just flat gullible. And I'm not saying that there's something inherently wrong about wanting more and more people to come to Jesus, but I am saying that we need to put our eyes on the right price. Beloved, we need to value the things that Jesus values in his church, and that's at least in part what he's about to reveal here. I don't know what the people in Philadelphia thought about this church. I don't know what the other churches in that area and in that era thought about this church, but Jesus says something about what he thinks about this church. He doesn't criticize them for their little strength. Here's what he says to them. You have been faithful to my word, and you have not denied my name. That's what he says. And I pray that we'll listen to this carefully. I I pray that we'll hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches because I think that's what Jesus wants to be able to say to every church everywhere in the world uh, across time. These are the things for which he wants to, to, to bless his church, to bless his bride, to commend his people. Beloved, when you think about what Jesus values in a church, one of the primary things he values is a people who love his word. It's a a people who listen to his word, listen to his heart through his word. It's a people who who take to heart the things that he has to say. It's a people who will keep his word, which means to obey the word. It means to put the things that Jesus has to say into practice. So they value his speech, they take it to heart, they put it into practice. I hope you can see that what he's truly valuing here is the devotion of his people's hearts to him. Like his disposition toward God the Father, so he wants his people to be toward him. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be fully devoted to him. And as a demonstration of our faithfulness to him, we listen to his words, right? We listen to his speech. For the last week and a half, Kim has been staying with his, her brother's family. He's had to go back in the hospital. He's been in now for 37 days, and the, the, the outlook is, isn't looking that great at the moment. God is with him, God's been with us, and I, I trust that the Lord will work in his life, but right now things are a little bit difficult. So she's over there, and she's helping minister to the family and just helping them with practical things, demonstrating love to them. But every day, 
as we've been separated, I have just longed to hear her voice because I value her. I care about her. I'm devoted to her. And because I'm devoted to her, because this ring means something to me, because this ring is just more than cheap gold that I bought at JCPenney 30 years ago, because it's more to me than just a, a symbol, because it's expressive of my heart to Kim, I want to hear her voice. And even if we can only talk for a few minutes, I just want to hear the things she has to say. And I know it's not a perfect metaphor, but I, I think this is what the Lord has in mind. The people who are devoted to him value his words. They listen to his speech. They take it to heart. They walk it out. They apply it. They, they obey him. They trust him. And the second thing Jesus said is, you haven't denied my name. When fierce opposition has come against you, when severe persecution has come to you, you have not sought the easy way out by denying that you know me, denying that you're loyal to me, or by forsaking the way altogether. You have not done this. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you have remained faithful to my name. You have remained faithful to my word. To, yeah, to my word. And so essentially he's saying to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, my sons and daughters. Well done, my children. Well done, my bride. The Lord is commending them for the things that he primarily values and how I pray that we'll have ears to hear at this point because, beloved, this is the heart of Christ for all the churches throughout the world and across time. When Jesus thinks about what he wants to commend the church for, these two certainly make the top of the list. I'm sure there are other things. But these two things make the top of the list. And I pray that as you reflect on your life, especially in this strange season we're living through, as you reflect on the life of this church and the life of the church throughout the world, that you will put uh, value and faithfulness to the word and value and faithfulness to the name of Jesus at the top of your list as far as the things you want to grow in this year, in this season of your life and in every season of life. I pray that you will prioritize these things above all things because these are the things for which Jesus wants to commend his people. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As for the church in Philadelphia, Jesus' commendation of them certainly implied that they were undergoing persecution. And as we see in verse 9, the sad fact of the matter was that they were being persecuted by the Jewish community in that city. If you'll please look with me now at verse 9. Some very sobering words from Jesus. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. About 210 BC, a number of Jews migrated to that part of the world and settled in various cities, one of which was Philadelphia. There in that city, they built a synagogue, they established their way of life, and later when the Roman Empire became powerful, the Jews uh, around the world, beginning in Jerusalem and spreading from there, made a, an agreement with the Roman government. Namely, they I don't know what they promised to give to the government, but I know what the government promised them, and that was that they gave them a, a reprieve from the requirement to worship Greek and Roman gods and Greek and Roman emperors. They did not have to worship every god or any emperor. They were allowed simply to worship the Lord their God. This was a great grace from the Lord, but when it came to the Christian church, they really abused that grace. They, they abused that privilege. As the gospel was being preached throughout the world and churches were beginning to rise up and interact with Jewish people in one city after another, the Jews would oppose the church directly in a number of ways, but then they would uh, use a certain tactic to basically use the Roman government as a tool against the church. And here was the tactic. It was pretty simple. They would go to the local authorities and say, look, these people are not us. They're a, a break-off group 
They're not pleasing to us. They're not part of us. We don't bless them. We don't want them. They should not be called by our name. We certainly don't want to be called by their name. They should not be granted the same reprieve that we have been granted. And in this way, they forced the, uh, the authority and the ire of the Roman government to come down upon the church because the church, like the Jews, refused to worship any other gods. And it was their exclusive focus on Jesus that got them in so much trouble around the world from secular authorities, at least until the, the 4th century AD. But what I think we need to understand here is that primarily it was the Jews that were orchestrating this in many of these towns in this area. Just like the, the leading Jews, at least, of, of Jerusalem had come against Jesus and used the Roman government in part to do so, now Jews around the world were doing the same thing to the church. They were persecuting the, the people of Jesus much as they had persecuted Jesus himself. And Jesus did not criticize the church. Rather, he blessed them for this. He made them a, a promise, in fact, that was pretty mind-blowing. But first, he says to them two things about these Jews that were claiming to be Jews and were not, which I take to mean that they were, they were um, uh, you know, claiming the name of God. They were claiming to be in God, to know Yahweh, but they did not at all. And in fact, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because that's the first thing that Jesus said of them. He said two things of them. That was the first thing. Jesus said that they were not Jews at all, but were in fact a synagogue of Satan. This doesn't mean that they were Satan worshipers. It means that on the one hand, they would read the scripture in their synagogue services, right? They would teach the scripture. The leaders, uh, the, the teachers of the synagogue, probably Pharisees, would purport to be experts in the scripture. And yet on the other hand, they were rejecting everything the scripture said. They were completely blind to the purposes and promises and plans of God in the world that were being fulfilled through Jesus Christ right before their eyes. They were completely blind. They claimed to know God, but their hearts were far from him. His words were in their mouth. Their hearts were a million miles away. This was what it was like to, to, to be one of those those people. While they claim to know the will of God and to be doing the will of God in the world, the, the fact of the matter is that they were working against the will of God, which can only mean that they were doing the will of Satan in the world. Much like Jesus said to some of the Pharisees in Israel uh, in the middle of the Gospel of John, he said to them, look, your father's the devil, and you're doing the will of your father. My father is God, and I, I'm doing the will of, of my father as well. He was not saying that the devil literally gave birth to these people. He was saying that these people were acting like the children of the devil. They were following in the will and ways of the devil rather than in the will and ways of, will and ways of God. And this is what he's saying about the synagogue in Philadelphia. They claimed to be Jews and they weren't. They were actually following Satan. They did not know the God that they claimed to know. And because that, Jesus says a second thing. He says that at the end of time, at least I'm assuming he's talking about the end of time. Perhaps he's not, but I think he is. At the end of time, when all things are reconciled and Jesus brings everything to its appointed end and Jesus judges every soul for their works, he's going to re reverse the situation here. The first will be last, the last will be first. And those who had so much power over the church and were persecuting the church in that city, Jesus said, I'm going to make them come before you. I'm going to make them bow down at your feet and they're going to learn something. They're going to understand something. They're going to know something in that moment. Now that is an unbelievably powerful thing to say. The word for bow down here is the Greek word proskuneo. And if you've ever been in a, any kind of serious Greek Bible study, you, you might know the word proskuneo is the word that usually gets translated worship. It means to bow down. Usually the object of that bowing is God himself so that we bow before the Lord with our lips and with our lives is the way that I say it. With our bodies and also with our behavior. 
And he, Jesus is certainly not saying that these people are going to come and worship the church. He's not saying that at all. But he is saying that because the name of God is upon them, the enemies of the church are going to come and humble themselves before the church. They're going to bow down before the church to the glory of Jesus Christ, who not only preserved them, but has now reversed the position and shown the true place of his people before God in all eternity, not just in the temporary circumstances of this world. Jesus was going to do a stunning thing for them, beloved. He was going to cause them to be victors over their enemies who had so much power over them. And in that moment, the church would not gloat over their enemies. And Jesus didn't even say that these people would apologize to the church. Rather, he put the focus on himself and said, here's what's going to happen when they bow down before you. They're going to know that I loved you. They're going to know that my love has been upon you. They're going to know that for all your warts and wounds, that you were following me and you were the ones that were doing my will in the world. They're going to know that I was with you and that I was trying to plead with them through you to come to me as well. They're going to know the truth. The ESV translates this word learn. They're going to learn that I have loved you. But the word is, is more literally to know here. And they're, they're just translating it in such a way to say that they're going to, these people are going to come to learn something about you. They're going to know it and they're going to know it very well. That the church has the people of God and Jesus stands with his uh, people, not only in time but for all eternity. Beloved, at this time of their lives, the church in Philadelphia was suffering some very fierce things. If you think the church in America right now is going through it, this is nothing compared to what many of our brothers and sisters around the world are enduring right now and to what our brothers and sisters in Philadelphia were enduring back then. They were really going through severe fire. They were going through serious, direct, and severe persecution. And Jesus said, look, don't put your eyes on your circumstances. Put your eyes on your Savior and know something. I'm going to turn all of this around. And one day you will be the victor and your enemies will bow before you to the glory of my name. Beloved, he's trying to encourage them by lifting up their eyes to see things that are not apparent in the flesh, but that can be seen through the Spirit. So let us have eyes to see too, beloved. Let us take our eyes and our focus off of our present circumstances and put them onto our Savior. That's where our hope lies. That's where our future lies. And because Jesus is holy, because he is true, whatever he has promised, he will surely do. As hope-producing as this promise of Jesus was, he had more to say to the church. So he continues in verse 10 and says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have obeyed me, you've listened to me, you've valued my words, you've put them into practice, and you've kept on keeping on through all the trials and tribulations of this life. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try or to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon, so hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That little phrase at the end of verse 10 those who dwell on the earth, that phrase is used a number of times in the book of Revelation to refer to unbelievers. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, because you have kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the judgment that's coming upon those who are persecuting you. Right now, they have the upper hand. Right now, they have power over you, but they don't have eyes to see that they are inviting wrath upon themselves. 
They don't have eyes to see that they are simply inviting burning coals down on their head. They don't understand that they are going to face fierce judgment for coming against me and for coming against my people. I'm going to reverse things, beloved. The first will be last and the last will be first. And when the day of tribulation and when the day of judgment comes, I'm going to spare you from it. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is necessarily going to literally take his people out of the world so that they will not be present when the judgment of tribulation breaks out in the earth. In fact, Jesus prayed this in his high priestly prayer in the upper room, in the hearing of all his apostles. He, he, he prayed something very similar, at least using similar language. Here's what he said. This is John 17, 15 through 19. He said, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world. Please hear that. Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of the church. He's not saying, look, Father, please cause them to stop suffering. He's, he's, he's not saying that at all. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. Same word as in Revelation 3. But that you keep them from the evil one. To be kept doesn't mean to be taken out. To be kept means to be preserved. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Beloved, I would rather us be prepared to be alive when intense tribulation breaks out in the earth so that we're prepared to endure and we don't take this as some sign that we've been forsaken by God when we're actually being kept by God. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them, make them holy in truth, and it's your word that is truth. It is your word and fidelity to your word that causes people to be holy, to be devoted to you, to be happy in you, to be glad in you, to be willing to suffer even for the glory of your name. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Don't take them out of the world, Father. I sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself. I make myself holy that they also may be sanctified, made holy in truth. This is the will of Jesus for his people, beloved. We, we need to stop thinking that the day is coming when the trials and tribulations of this earth are going to end for us. We need to stop expecting that someday Jesus is going to magically take all of his people out of the earth while everybody else suffers. There may be a time when he pours fierce wrath out upon the earth for which we will not be present. I am not clear about all the future de details of the plans in the heart of Jesus, but I do think that the people of God will in part be present as the wrath of God is poured out upon the nations for their rebellion against him. In fact, I think we're seeing that in part right now. I think we're living through that right now. If you talk to persecuted believers around the earth, they will tell you much more certainly than I'm telling you right now that we are living through that right now. But this is the hope we need to know. It doesn't matter whether Jesus leaves us here or, or takes us home because he's promised to keep us. He's going to keep us in the midst of tribulation. He's going to keep us from that wrath. He's going to keep us faithful and believing and praying for the world as priests even in the midst of that wrath. This is the hope Jesus has for us, beloved. He's going to keep us. He's going to sanctify us. And with this in mind, he, he simply says, look, I'm coming soon. And in this case, that's not at all a warning to the church. It's actually a word of hope to the church. He's saying to the church, look, your suffering isn't going to last forever. Right now, there are probably days where you feel like your tribulation will never come to an end. But that's just a feeling. It's going to be like a blink of an eye. And I'm going to come in a flash. I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come soon. And when I come soon, your hope will be revealed. Your living, eternal, incorruptible hope will be revealed. And so all the Lord says to this church is hold fast. 
cling tightly to what you have. And what did they have? Well, they had Jesus. They had hope in Jesus. They had his word. They had his name. They had his will. They now had his blessing. They had his encouragement. Cling tightly to that. Cling tightly to your Savior. Walk with him so that no one may take your crown, the the victor's crown, the crown of the one who wins the race successfully and, and gains the prize. Don't let anybody take that crown. Cling to your Savior. That's all the Lord has to say to this church. Not a criticism. A strong, strong, strong encouragement. You have been faithful. I will be faithful to you. So cling tightly to me. Cling tightly to your hope. And for the one who hears what the Spirit has to say to the churches, for the one who conquers this world by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord makes some truly breathtaking promises to them and to us. So please now hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is verses 12 and 13. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who wins the victory in this world and over this world, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of course, Jesus is not telling people that if you overcome, I'm going to turn you from people into pillars. I'm going to turn you from persons into things. He's not saying that. You know what he's saying? He's saying that for those of you who overcome by faith in me, I'm going to make a place for you in the place where God dwells eternally. I'm going to give you not only access to the Holy of Holies in heaven, but I'm actually going to allow you to set up residence there. Now, if you know anything about the scripture, that ought to take your breath away. Not even King David, who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. In every season of life, he was a man after God's heart. Even in his sin, he fled to God and begged for forgiveness and cleansing. Create in me a a clean heart, O God, he prayed, right? Not even King David could go into the Holy of Holies on earth for a single second. And now Jesus is saying, for you who overcome, I'm going to give you a residence inside the actual Holy of Holies and you will never have to leave. It will be your proper home. You will belong there because you belong to God and he belongs to you. He will be your God. You will be his people. This is the promise of Jesus, beloved, eternal life. Be faithful to me and you will enter into my joy forever and ever and ever. And when you're there, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to mark you with my name. I'm going to write the name of my father upon you. I'm going to write the name of the the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven from him. Not the the earthly Jerusalem that you can see with your eyes now, but it's a new creation. It's a new place for the people of God being crafted by God. And I'm going to write that name on you because you will belong to that city. You will finally find your home. You will finally reside in a place that you will never move away from. Oh, Kim and I have moved so much. We we feel like Abraham and Sarah in our lives. We're just wandering. We're probably going to wander until the day we just drop dead and, and, and die somewhere. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was not looking for a home on this earth. He was looking toward a greater city, that heavenly eternal city. And that's what Jesus is promising here. It doesn't matter if you've never had a home on this earth or if you've always had the same home on this earth. This earth is not your home. We're just a passing through, Right? That's what the hymn writer said. Jesus is saying, I'm going to write the name of that city on you because you're going to belong to it and it's going to belong to you. In fact, I think he's saying something more profound even. Because when you look at Revelation 21, John has this vision where 
the Lord helps him to see the city coming down out of heaven. And the great mystery is revealed that the city is actually the church. The city is actually the bride of Jesus Christ. And I think what Jesus is saying is for those who conquer, you're going to take the family name and I'm going to write on you the name of my bride. And this is why I think Jesus adds that he's even going to write upon us his own new name. I, I don't know what new name he has in mind, perhaps since he has now finished the work of his father on the earth and, and, and been ascended again to the right hand of God. Perhaps in a new age he'll have a new name. Perhaps we won't primarily call him by the name Jesus anymore. I don't know exactly what that means. I just know that whatever it means, Jesus said, I'm going to put my name upon you because you're going to belong to me as a bride belongs to a husband and a husband belongs to a bride. You're suffering now, but you will be eternally unified with me. So look up to your Savior, beloved. Look up to the hope that he has given to you that nobody can take away. He is the Holy One, the true one who has the singular key of David and all authority in heaven and on earth. Whatever he opens up to you, nobody can shut you out. And whatever he shuts and whoever he shuts out can never get in. They can never open that door. I was thinking earlier this week that Jesus doesn't need any alarm systems. He doesn't need any security guards. He doesn't need any cameras. He doesn't need any of this stuff because he has absolute power over what he opens and what he secures. And now I don't know exactly what he was talking about earlier in the letter here, but I know when he was talking about this door that he had opened, but here I know clearly what he's saying is I'm going to open up the door of the kingdom of God to you, beloved. And by faith in me, you will enter in and nobody will be able to take your place away. I will make you a place inside the temple of my God and you will never come out again. And I will mark you with the name of my father, with the name of the great city of my bride and with my own new name. So may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we have ears to hear and to receive what Jesus has revealed to us about himself today. May we have hearts to receive, even emotionally to receive the fact that he is these things for the church. He is these things for us. May we have ears to hear and hearts to receive this truth that if he is for us, nobody or nothing can ultimately stand against us. Yes, in this world we will have trouble, but we should be filled with courage because Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has overcome the world and in him we also will overcome. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray that God will help us with that. Our Father, I thank you again for being a God who speaks to us. And I thank you again for being a God who has spoken this particular word to us. And I pray again for your help, Lord, to hear what you have said, truly to hear it. Lord, I pray for your help to receive these things deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would be helping every believer that's hearing these words to apply them to the circumstances of their lives. And I pray for every unbeliever who's hearing them to be so attracted to the vision that you have for your people and for our future that they would want to become yours. And I pray that they would bow their knee before you and confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because if they would only believe in you, they will never perish but have this kind of everlasting life and everlasting hope of which we've spoken today. Oh, please, Lord, help us, all of us, to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and for how you will work in us and for how you will work through us, for the fruit that you will bear in us and the fruit you will bear through us in this season and every season of life. Lord Jesus, we give you our thanks and praise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.